I want to learn everything. You want to be a grifter? Grifter? Yes. Not partners. That's your first lesson. Cut your score in half right down the middle. Worse than that, you take a partner, you put an apple on your head, hand the other guy a shotgun. Grifters, huh? You're one all right. Grifters got an irresistible urge to be the guy who's wise. There's nothing to whipping a fool. Hell, fools are made to be whipped. But to take another pro, even your partner, who knows you and has his eye on you, that's a score. No matter what happens. So you want to learn a few tricks? I'll teach you a few tricks. But your hand does not get into my pocket. What's the deal? Roy. Mm-hmm. All right, forget the long con. With the full tips, you're cut. You'll do time. Never do time. And don't go dressing like that. Yeah. Showing off. Showing off! Any blind man could spot you. Yeah. Give me $20. around tomorrow. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 78 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. This week, on the free and premium episode, I think it's time to do a little, instead of instead of some more deep dives into new topics and new areas of interest, I think it's time to do some updates on ongoing stories and topics of TMK interest. You know, things that we've devoted whole episodes to talking about in the past just keep rearing their ugly little heads up. Keep make keep keep doing new shit, right? We we got Clover Health in the news. We got Chamath Palahapatia in the news. We got BlackRock in the news. We got Enduro in the news. We got the Cold War 2.0 in the news. It's time it's time to spend some time to to look and see because the world don't stop turning after we talk about it. Unfortunately, much to our chagrin, uh, we're trying to put this shit in its grave, but it just keeps like a zombie rising back up infecting new people, making more destruction in the world. Uh, so we want to give y'all a little, little update on some of that shit. But um, before we get rolling uh, on, on, the, on these news stories, I wanted to want to let y'all know I learned a new word this week. It, you know, it, I love it. I love it when I learn a new word. We got the word of the week going on. It's libertarianism, not to be confused with libertarianism, although maybe. Uh, <laughs> possible. It's definitely possible. <laughs> yeah, Jeremy threw in the chat, use libertarianism in a sentence. <laughs> yeah, please do. All right. Libertarianism is a trick that liberals pull to get you to imagine things, but never actually do anything about it. <laughs> yes. Okay. Okay. New favorite word. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So it was Sounds like a Catholic sect, to be honest. Though. <laughs> it does though, right? Limitarianism. I it does not roll off the tongue well at all. It sounds yeah, it sounds like some real like uh, uh Illuminati type shit. I ain't gonna lie. <laughs> 
Limitarianism uh, is from this article in the in the Washington Post titled, Is it time to limit personal wealth? Big old question oh, yeah. mark on that one. Not not a declarative sentence. They they're just asking questions here. Asking questions. Right. Investigating. This is how they talk about limitarianism, right? They say, quote, instead of debating tweaks at the edges of our tax system, what we should be doing is stretching ourselves to imagine a world where this dissonance is truly incomprehensible, a world where billionaires are impossible. Doing so would require a a revised conception of what is good and what is fair, an approach focused less on what is allowed and more on what is enough. Like, all right, all right, I like this. Yeah, let's imagine a world with no billionaires where billionaires aren't even possible. Let's imagine a world about like, you know, maybe abolishing billionaires. But they say, wait, 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 don't go that far. Don't go that far. Because actually what limitarianism is, is, quote, limitarian thought doesn't depend on a specific number. The crucial point is to debate not where the line can be drawn, but whether it even makes sense. Okay. Okay. Now, right. now, now you lost me. So right. on one hand, they're like, yo, limitarianism is like, let's think of, let's imagine, let's go into our radical mind palaces <laughs> and let's, let's imagine the possibilities of, of limits. Now, doesn't that feel nice? Doesn't it feel nice to imagine the possibilities of limits? All right. It, stop there. All- it's also interesting because it goes on and you know it says and just considering this idea forces a radical and exciting revision of how we consider the problems inequality the pro publica's reporting reveals and pushes us to ask new questions about the axioms by which we have agreed to live but i mean like these questions have been posed for years the question is like whether or not people are being convinced of them now because of certain shifts in uh general sentiment because of reporting because of cultural shifts you know because of political shifts because of ideological shifts because of economic shifts because of social shifts like people's minds are being changed over time not solely by asking should we do it should we pursue can what will immortal limitarian thought suggest we do in this instance but it but also at the same i don't know if it's uh it's like on the one hand i get the impetus to just be like let's just say radical or let's like invoke radical things to get people thinking about it but also it's like like you said how much of that energy is just going to go into like let's imagine Mm -hmm. a very complex scenario in which this radical thing is considered wouldn't it be like what does that make you feel how does that make you feel jay authentics imagine a society where we limit wealth versus like what let's how do we get to that point right how do or how do we like obviously more obviously connect the the will the ills of today and the woes of people around the globe to this project that has existed and has been called for for decades right for Mm -hmm. centuries yeah it i know exactly right it's something we've talked about before so in a way this is a revisit of tmk topics of interest is that like they love to stick us on this infinite treadmill of discourse, right? right? Never goes anywhere. It's just like, well, no, we need to open up the radical possibilities for radical thinking to radically imagine radical change. But also we got to do that forever, right? We just got to sit here. We just got to run on this treadmill forever. Never actually getting to that point, never actually reaching that end goal. But, you know, 
it's a journey, baby. It's all about the journey. It's not about the right. end goal. It's about the journey of imagining putting limits on billionaires, not the actual like, no, give me specific numbers and thresholds and actions. It sounds to me like some straight like uh, this. This is some like Pete Buttigieg shit, right? Like this, this, <laughs> this is like, <laughs> like the, like the language I mean, he's, around he's like, a te- he's a technocrat now, right? My man runs, uh, runs, um, transportation, uh, yeah. department. That's so right. just come into our radical mind palace with people are just, we're going to imagine the limits on, uh, personal wealth, right? But not too high because I need donors <laughs> for 2024. Yeah. Like, like, yo, I can imagine Pete Buttigieg saying something like, the limits of possibility are the limits of horizons that your mind can reach. Oh no, that's one of yeah. It's like, what does that even mean? What <laughs> do you smart, I, right? <laughs> with, also, with this limitarian thought, one thing I'm curious in is like, is there something that's too far for them? For example, like, you know, we've talked on the show about sabotage. We've talked on the show about um, you know seizing production and reorienting other means, and we have also talked about. Uh, projects in the opposite direction like these smart urban projects or these new cities made by the consultants like uh, you know what how does the limitarian project approach things that already exist already have a lot of power is this is the solution to just consider that maybe it shouldn't be or is it to like con like to beat an agenda or a platform or a bunch of ideas because it sounds like the limitarianism just is like is narrowly applied to like no one should have surplus money right Mm -hmm. is that is that what it comes down to that is what it comes down to right it's basically saying like we need like what would be a threshold that would be like like a socially acceptable amount of personal wealth for a person to have and since it's so focused on billionaires it's like they're kind of beating around the bush that the threshold is like 999 million dollars right like, yeah. i feel like, like the threshold is lower than that to be honest <laughs> yeah yeah i think the threshold is way lower than that yeah shit, right? that's, a lot, that's a lot lower than that i don't want to alienate our viewers who may have 999 million dollars but uh it's a lot lower than that uh, by an order orders of magnitude not an order orders of magnitude i think it should be the other way around i think everybody should have no money and then they've got to figure out what the fuck they're going to do that's right we're going to get rid of money we could uh i mean maybe well one day we'll have an episode on blockchain and why blockchain is the best technology that's ever been invented but we're going to use it to get rid of fiat currency and the way to get rid of it by getting rid of fiat currency is backing it in fiat currency and tying it to fiat currency i think we should we should definitely do like maybe the patreon we could do the episode on that right yeah we can uh we can talk about how blockchain is like reinventing the gold standard <laughs> and central banking. <laughs> you think the CEO of uh, Coinbase? How was that guy's name? Brian Brian Armstrong or something? Can we get him? Now, when we get the president of El Salvador on to discuss, oh yeah, that's <laughs> no, <good>. absolutely not, <laughs> absolutely not. I've kicked that guy out of at least three different bars. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he does have that energy, right? He does oh, have that yeah, energy. He does. That authoritarian millennial energy. We love it. We love to see it.
was reading through this piece that one of the limitarians wrote. It's about a year old or two years. It's almost two years old. It's from September 2019. And so, you know, for the sake of life on earth, we must put a limit on wealth. And the old overriding argument is that um, income is by far the most important determinant of environmental impact, right? If you have surplus money, you spend it. And the only form of consumption, it writes, that's clearly and positively correlated with good environmental intentions is diet, right? People who send them, see themselves as green, eat less meat, eat more organic vegetables, but they still, this has nothing to do with like, this doesn't change how transport fuel is used or how home energy is used or how other materials and their supply chains are constructed and used, right? And so wealth has a horrible effect. You know, you drive expensive cars, right? Or, or you drive cars and expensive, not expensive, it doesn't really matter. Um, it also has corrosive social effects. It also has corrosive, you know, uh, effects on the capacity for people to show empathy and their desire to protect their environment. And so, also, all of this culminates with the fact that, like, you know, the rich have more destructive capacity and also less vulnerability to the consequence of these actions, right? And also less threshold for caring. And so the argument is like, okay, we need to limit the wealth, right? We need to limit the wealth so that we can prevent, you know, um, these people from being destructive and that we also need to do it to ignore people like Bill Gates who might be saying that divestment from fossil fuels is dangerous, right? And that instead we need to do new technologies, right? But I feel, I don't know, I have the sense or I feel like all of this still ends up ignoring the, the fundamental political economy of like why this or that happens, right? That limiting wealth is not also going to change global shipping patterns and limiting wealth is not going to change like food production networks and that limiting wealth is not going to change like the nature of industrial civilization, right? That those are things that have to be changed and scrutinized and undermined when necessary to create a world that is sustainable and doesn't face ecological crisis and is not going to devastate billions of people with climate change. I feel that it kind of overstates that income has a huge detriment inside of us, inside of our current civilization, but that reducing income doesn't change all of these things that the civilization still needs to do. You actually have to change the underlying institutions and structures. And I don't really see proposals from them to do that beyond limiting the amount of income and wealth people can have, if that makes sense, right? It, like, it doesn't mm -hmm. feel like they're calling for distribution of these resources into social and public infrastructure. Are they calling for a specific program? It feels more like they're just saying, like like you like you said, it just gets back to the end where a lot of the proposals that are public facing are just like, imagine, imagine a world where rich the richest person had $999 million. And it's like, okay, that could be anything. Like I need more instructions or structure within which to envision this world. Like what is the, what are the underlying political and economic and legal constraints on what we can and can't do. And I don't see that from the limitarianism, which I feel like is another reason why, as you put in the beginning, it is, it ends up being like a weird, like one quick fix, but also a neoliberal reinforcement of the status quo. Yeah, no, you, you, you've absolutely nailed it because the point I was going to bring up is that nowhere in here are they talking about redistribution. That's what we need. We don't need limitarianism. We need redistributionism, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, part of this is like, 
okay, unsurprising, right? That like, you know, a, a, a newspaper, an op-ed in a newspaper like the Wall Street or the Washington Post rather, um, you know, this is about as radical as they're willing to get. Cause all of this is uh, the, like, the point of all this is those like, is the huge, uh, reporting recently by ProPublica, um, where they got like the, you know, the secret IRS files, right? They had all these like, you know, leaked tax returns and shit like that showing, um, how wealthy, people like Bezos and Musk and, and, you know, Bloomberg and these people are, um, and how little to essentially like no taxes they, they pay. Right. You know, that was the, that was the occasion for this op-ed, but I think it shows, uh, it shows a lot that the, you know, this op-ed ends by saying, you know, so it asks a series of questions, including things like, you know, uh, Surely the prospect of having only $999 million would not stop innovators in their tracks. And even if it did stop some, would the trade-off be so bad? These sorts of questions are numerous, complicated, and more difficult to answer than they first appear. But the hmm. real, va- but the real value of this uh, latest revelation about wealth and taxes is that it forces us to start asking them. Uh, no, but as you said, <laughs> Ed, like, <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. As you said, it's like maybe you have just now started asking these questions, right? And so you're still, and so you're probing around like the weak. Uh, edge of of mm-hmm. this by being like imagine a world with no billionaires only 999 millionaires right mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like that i mean also the fact is is that world existed not that long ago right like billionaires are a really modern uh really contemporary innovation in the economy and though and it's not like the economy was like heaps better with without billionaires right the economy it, the fact of the matter is is as you know as we were saying it's about the distribution of that wealth but also as you just rightfully pointed out it's about the whole system how is that system organized right that's that's what annoys me about this and it's like okay yeah no surprise the washington post isn't going to be like calling for appropriation and insurrection and uh you know redistributing and imprisoning billionaires or whatever but i think the i think what i think what we have to be uh, careful of here is not falling for this like yeah this like liberal liberalism one trick uh one quick trick kind of bullshit um dressed up in radical clothing but in reality it is just a lot of uh uh, reinforcing of the status quo it's a it's a way to distract us right like i always think um riley you know from trash future does this bit on twitter where he has this uh image of like of like dangling keys and he'll mm-hmm. like quote tweet or respond to shit like this with those dangling keys to be like, <laughs> that's what this is meant to do. Right. It treats us like children and it's right. meant to distract us by dangling mm-hmm. some keys. So we uh-huh. don't start asking real questions or start looking at real fundamental things. Yeah. I mean like, look, we've known, we know we consume too much. We've known we've consumed too much for so long for decades at this point. What there's nothing radical that's, that's come out of that imagination of uh of of that radical idea that we're consuming too much meat that we're consuming way too much uh natural resources uh that our supply chains are unsustainable what we have done is reconfigured them and reskinned them so that instead of the child labor and the slave labor being directly employed by the company 
and then directly enslaved by the company. It is a, is contracted to a subcontractor who contracts it to another subcontractor that contracts it back to another contractor who subcontracts it to a slaver. Right? It just it hasn't fundamentally changed the world to just consider another world right the point is you know not to just fucking think about the goddamn world you got to change it i think there's uh yeah marx had a quote about that right washington post <laughs> yeah. columnist have been <laughs> concerned with asking questions about the world but the point is to change it right? <laughs> right and i mean unsurprisingly as well right in the interest of uh being uh fair and balanced uh this op-ed about like you know can we should we start thinking about limiting personal wealth this op-ed came out a day after they published a piece by megan mccardle who's one of you know one of our favorite uh Mm. libertarian useful idiots uh econ 101 galaxy brain people right every every time they come out i have a google alert for them so i can (laughs) bask in the glory And she, she, you know, unsurprisingly, right? Like her, um, her piece on, on, uh, in the Washington Post was titled, Think Twice Before Changing the Tax Rules to Soak Billionaires, right? Like <laughs> just some useful idiot shit. Friend of the show, Paris Marx had a, had a tweet that, that did some good numbers about like, remind me again who owns the Washington Post, <laughs> right? But, but also mm-hmm. I, I think the fact is, is that, uh, uh, Megan McArdle would be writing these uh, columns in her personal diary, even if she weren't getting paid for it, right? Because she truly believes this shit, right? Like, right. like she doesn't have to take marching orders from Bezos or whatever. It's it's that Noam Chomsky shit, right? She she's not getting marching orders. She has this job because she truly believes that shit, um, and she and she will do it for free if no one were to pay her for it. One of my fa- one of my favorite. One of my favorite lines in uh, this op-ed is people should pay taxes on untaxed capital gains. It's something you would come up with if you just don't think anyone should have enough money to be able to shoot themselves into space. And you think the government should tax the money, even if it doesn't benefit anyone else. Heck, even if it costs the rest of us something. First, yeah, maybe... You shouldn't have enough money to shoot yourself into space. Maybe that is a good idea. Maybe that, maybe the limitarians can come in and be like, actually, that's the limit. You can, you're not allowed to go into suborbital space or into space, uh, with the money, the ill-gotten gains, but also the idea that the government is taxing the money, even if it doesn't benefit anyone else or it costs the rest of us something. I mean, it's not really clear what it costs us. What, you know, earlier she tries to say that. Um, quote, it probably wouldn't feel very fair if it applied to you and me just because the value of your house jumped in a hot market doesn't mean you have enough cash to pay taxes on that appreciation. And the ultra wealthy boohoo wouldn't be forced out of their family homes. They may be forced to sell off stock of a business they spent decades building. Eight of the 10 richest people in the United States got that way by building very successful firms from the ground up. It's like, I don't give a fuck, man. You know, like <laughs> it's not really comparable to com- to compare people's homes, which are usually mortgaged and assets that they sink a lot of money into on the premise that they're going to be valuable later. Right. And they can pass this wealth down. Right. And they can, and it can accrue and grow, blah, blah, blah. That is very different than me having 
in a state full of speculative instruments from the stock market to real estate, right, to other weird investments um, that grow in value, but I don't get taxed on for one reason or another. Maybe it's because I had someone uh, value my art at a, in a, such a way that I can write off the service, right? Or deduct or get a weird deduction for the increase in the value by donating it to a foundation that I also hope happen to own, whatever. I get charitable, a tax, um, tax deductible charitable uh, donation to another philanthropic organization that is somehow tangentially connected to mine. It doesn't matter. Like there's a huge world of difference. The assets and the money available to individuals to defer paying taxes so that they can do something else with capital versus what the rich have. Like you can, t- if you're wealthy, you can take, you can borrow against that stock, right? She's saying you can't sell it. You can't sell it to pay uh, taxes, but you can't borrow against it and pay an interest rate, which is lower than the tax rate you would have on the stocks themselves if you had sold them. So you can play with free money, essentially, that you only have to pay a fraction of the expense that you would if you had actually taken out the real money from the stock market and use it to grow or invest in things at a more aggressive rate than the interest rate. And then you like you can do this ad in, ad, is it ad nauseum, ad infinitum, but you know, go on and both. on and on. <laughs> yeah, it's both, right? <laughs> both. Over and over until the end of fucking time, which people do do. And the IRS stories show, reveal that they do regularly, right? There are a million opportunities open to them. But the thing that McArdle does here that a lot of people do do also when they're um, talking about the rich and the wealthy, and they're also trying to obscure the political economy behind why wealth and capital accumulate in certain places and not others, is by narrowing in on a very few uh, points that not, aren't really even straw mans, but can be put into a binary opposition, right? So ignoring points about charitable foundations, ignoring uh, things about uh, dodging the estate tax, ignoring things about uh, how much their actual, how much they can borrow against their uh, their pre-existing capital assets, and instead focusing on a narrow sliver, which is like capital gains taxes, right? Mm-hmm. And this is. This is, I think, also something you have to watch out for. This is like the other side of the limitarian thing, right? Limitarians may be good intentioned in that they do want to push dialogue forward and and get people to actually reconsider the way our civilization works or society works, right? But then there are other people like Ricardo whose role is to just get you to look at the way it works and suppress your disgust and suppress your frustration and understand that that's just because you don't get it. You don't get how good this thing is actually, right? It's good. Jeff Bezos can launch himself into space with his brother and someone else who paid $28 million for the privilege of being on the flight for six minutes with them. It's good that it costs more to go into space today than it did on the Soyuz rocket. It's good that we allow billionaires to shoot whatever they want into space over and over again, right? And it would be bad if we taxed them so that they wouldn't be able to do it. Yeah, I, I only think it would be good if Bezos did shoot himself. Do it. Do it. In, into space. <laughs> into space. <laughs> right. um, in space, right. Yeah, uh, and McArdle ends this piece as well saying, but given a choice between letting billionaires spend fortunes reaching for the stars or destroying those fortunes so that the rest of us don't have to look at them, then personally, 
I'll take the rockets. The galaxy brain ship. I, <sighs> Bird brain ship. It is I mean, yeah, it's it's that it is that McCardell galaxy brain slash you know, you know, dressed you know, it's the bird brain dressed up as galaxy brain shit. You you're exactly right here. Uh that's what it is, right? And it's like, yeah, we can dunk on the cardinal a lot, and we do, and it's easy and it's fun, mm-hmm. and we should. We should do it constantly. But at the same time, you you're totally right that like there is like there is a reason why these are the dual op-eds that the Washington Post ran in, you know, about the kind of the ProPublica IRS files. Uh, you know, th- this is about setting while the libertarians are like, we need to expand the horizons of our imagination. In reality, what this duo of articles are doing is trying to, uh, uh, draw a boundary around our, uh, our, our possibilities, right? Around what we can imagine as possible. Um, they are ironically trying to limit <laughs> our own possibilities and imaginations. Cause when the McCardle article came out, I joked that I was like, all right, in the interest of being fair and balanced and objective, you know, the Washington Post needs to run a, an op-ed about like why we need to abolish and appropriate all billionaires. And I feel like, uh, they, a personal attack on me was that the day after I, I, I made that, that tweet, that's when the Limitarian <laughs> article came out. They were like, all right, this is the best we can do. <laughs> this is the best we can do. <laughs> It's beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. We we went we went off on those two articles a lot longer than I wanted than I was expecting us to. But you know, <laughs> there's a lot there's a lot of red meat there for us. Right. How, it was it was hard not to. I, I raved I, I waved a red flag in front of the bulls and we charged yeah, at it. You, you know what, can yeah, we what did you expect? You know. Yeah. <laughs> I wanna I wanna make my own pivot here. Um, I'm taking a note from the startups. I'm making a pivot. Mm, where, video? What's up? What are you doing? <laughs> pivot to pivot to profitability. I'm I'm, I'm eliminating the millennial lifestyle subsidy. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta have an episode on that, my man, because oh god, oh, god, man, don't don't get me started on it, please, please. I'm marshalling my thoughts. <laughs> Uh, yeah, uh, that's another, I'm, I'm waving another red flag in front of us inadvertently just by mentioning that fucking yeah, New York you Times are. off the head <laughs> millennial lifestyle subsidy. You are. Uh, You're a good just, colonist. Uh, I just didn't, I just, vi- I, I don't think a millennial lifestyle subsidy exists. There, basically, there's this piece of the New York Times that argued that uh, it was like farewell millennial lifestyle subsidy. And the argument there was that, um, you know, VCs acted irrationally and subsidized a specific type of lifestyle for bourgeois millennials, urban millennials, or a lifestyle that uh, resembled bourgeois uh, decadence, right? You had on-demand services whenever you wanted and they were cheap. So you could get food on demand, you get labor on demand, you get drivers on demand. But in reality, all of these things were expensive. And so we're going goodbye to that because the era of irrationality has ended. Profits need to be prioritized again. VCs are getting impatient with those shitty returns that they've had, as well as sovereign wealth funds. But, 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 but it confuses the causality. There's no millennial lifestyle subsidy. It's It always has been and it always will be just the fact that uh, these firms were trying to restructure the market in reality so that they would uh, have an environment which they could thrive in, right? It would be. I think it would be weird for us to say that, like, Amazon is, um, like, we wouldn't call what Amazon is doing a lifestyle subsidy. We understand what Amazon is doing. It's predatory behavior so that it can restructure the market and people's social relations to be 
more profitable to it, right? So that the products are in every part of your personal life. And so that any alternative is disrupted and rooted out. We wouldn't call that a lifestyle subsidy. So it feels weird to call it a lifestyle subsidy. But, but you know, that's enough on that. We'll, we'll talk later on it. <laughs> that's, yeah. I mean, that's more of that McArdle brain as well, where it, it's a, it's a way of, uh, like the whole, like McArdle's whole project is on one hand to get us to, uh, sympathize with, the cap with capitalist, right? Mm-hmm. It's about like, oh, we need, we need to sympathize with the ambitions and desires of, uh, Bezos, right? It goes back to that old, like, Mark Twain quote as well, where, you know, basically diagnosing that, you know, like class consciousness will never rise in America because Americans all see themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires, I mean, right? It's are. the way that, it's the way that McArdle was saying, like, yeah, but if this were happening to you, if your capital gains were being taxed, right? Uh, then you would, you wouldn't think it was fair. You wouldn't think it was fair. Um, the, the trick here as well is to try to like get us to put ourselves in the shoes of people like Bezos, where it's like, no, like, like there can only be one Bezos by definition, right? Like, like that's, that's the distribution at hand, right? It's a redistribution, um, upwards. We don't need to be like trying to sympathize with that. And that's part of what that millennial lifestyle subsidy is being like as well is that like, you know, we've been living on the, the la dress of uh, the venture capitalist. We've been riding high on the irrationality of the venture capitalist. Unsurprisingly, that New York Times essay never once mentioned anything about labor. Never once yeah. mentioned anything about exploitation. Never right. once mentioned anything about regulatory arbitrage, right? right? Like those things do not enter into the analysis of these, uh, of these columnists, right? Like, Nor should it. I mean, it's, it's not surprising, but it's like, but, but that is in, in a lot of ways, that is, that is a lot, that is like mainstream thought in a lot of ways as well, which is why it's like, we have to spend time talking about it, unfortunately, as much as it pains us, as much as it's, it, it just us. feels so dumb to have to like relitigate this shit, right? But like, that's where a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of thinking still is, at least in like the, the mainstream kind of organs of, uh, of, of thought uh, and policy. So I think where, where from here, where do we want to land? We want to talk about, do we want to update uh, the public on what our boy Palapatia has uh, been up to? Yeah, let's do it. Let's, 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 let's go, let's go over to Chamath Palapatia for a bit. Mm. So the New Yorker had a long ass profile on our favorite king of SPACs, Chamath Palahapatia. The one and only. The one and only. Now, there's a lot, there's some like, int- like this is a, like I said, it's a long profile. Um, it's like, it's in that style of the New Yorker where it's like simultaneously, um, like kind of a loving profile while also being a little, uh, uh, lovingly critical, right? Of, 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 of Palahapatia. There's, I, I don't want to, I don't think we need to go in like, like in depth into what this profile is, you know, like all the, you know, Chamath's whole life story and stuff. It, I mean, it's all stuff that we talked pretty in depth on, on our Clover Health episode. Right. Um, like we, we, we gave a rundown on who Palahapatia is, right? Uh, he, he, you know, he's the bad boy of venture capital. He, he's, he's the, you know, he, he's he's the meme lord. He's the spac lord. I think the, I think the most interesting thing about Chamath Palapatia is though is the way that he has created uh, a kind of a kind of type of guy 
He's created he's 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 created a type of guy uh that we that we see a lot of like really wealthy people like Elon Musk but also a lot of venture capitalists um you know trying to be you know become celebrities right become these like meme celebrities these these financial celebrities these celeb these investing celebrities right uh it, it's trying to take the VC the venture capitalist into the VC the venture celebrity and i i mean I think that there's a uh there's a lot of interesting things here in this kind of shift from uh you know capitalist becoming celebrity and building their wealth on it as well right like Chamath has built has is a billionaire and has built a lot of wealth on uh becoming this like like pseudo populist right like like he has this uh uh reputation of being a uh anti-corporatist populist billionaire um and and vc we, you know which talk about the contradictions of uh, inherent in capitalism right there's a lot of uh, cognitive dissonance going on with my man which which uh this this new yorker profile you know really hones in on as well in the sense that like the new yorker quotes a former employee of uh palahapatia's venture capital firm called social capital um, it says, quote, he's talking about climate change while he's wearing a $300,000 watch and flying around on a private jet. You know, it's ridiculous, but he makes you want to believe it can be true. You know, there's a section of this, this article, right, that then tries to say, OK, let's explain what the economy is. Right. You know, let's tell let's let's introduce our readers to what you know the economy is, gives a history of it, gives some interesting commentary from historians and economists and their books. There's this one specific one, uh, Irene Finnohanigan, who's a financial historian, author of this uh, book, Cultural History Finance, that talks about how, I guess, it, it, it tries to talk about the stories that are told about economic theories and when they emerged the most, right? Specifically after war, after recession, you know, after some new type of technology that uh, allows uh, communication mediums to accelerate the speed in which information can be propagated. You know, there's um, a particular point in which they hone in on, though, after they've been talking about the storytelling that goes on building up into financial crises, right? Building up into the Great Depression, building up into the Great Recession, right? Honing in on our lovely SPACs, you know, the meme stocks, the cryptocurrencies. There's a, there's a point in which Palahapatia was uh, tweeting, tell me what to buy tomorrow. And if you convince me, I'll throw a few hundred Ks at it to uh, start, ride or die. And as the price of Bitcoin rose, you promise when Bitcoin gets to 150K, I will buy the Hamptons and convert it to a sleepaway camp for kids, working farms, and low-cost housing. That's some old bullshit. Uh, when when asked about this peacocking, Fennel said these kinds of scam artists are really important because though they may go too far, they're the ones who convince everyone else to start paying attention. They're Pied Pipers. They notice things that other people miss, right? Now it comes as twofold. On the one hand, it comes in as saying, okay, now people can come in and follow what they think is the smart money, but it also sets in motion a set of dominoes falling in which the bubble burst, in which the bullshit, you know, is exposed, in which the facade crumbles, right? In which you start to realize how absurd things are, right? I mean, there's a there's a cover that was quoted in here that said, Can I spack my stonks with NFTs? <laughs> Can I spack my stonks with NFTs, right? 
next uh, expose on the $156 billion SPAC bubble, right? Uh, Finn O'Hanagan said, uh, told them the party will uh, be over for a while. Everyone starts ignoring the scam artists and picking through the wreckage to figure out what's useful and finance becomes boring again. I think that it's also one interesting question that probably hasn't been thought of a lot or as much as we might want it to, but and, but is also a hard one is, you know, what is going to remain from the SPACs and the stocks and the NFTs, right? You know, I think GameStop is a good example. GameStop's in value was targeted by that deep fucking value Reddit user because he said that it was artificially inflated. I mean, uh, undervalued thanks in part to the short sellers and that the company did actually have enough value to not be trading where it was at, but you know, much at a higher level, not $500, but at a higher level, you know, than it what where it was at that point. And so part of the, part of the squeeze, part of the jump, part of the fanatic fanaticism, I think, and the coverage of it kind of loses sight of that, that initially the hope, the idea here was to hold it long enough to benefit from the real turnaround that they were anticipating was going to happen. Right. And, and that, that has motivated some of the stocks with NFTs, you see, oh, you know, some of the initial uh, discussions were like, can digital art medium, can digital art provide a useful medium that empowers smaller artists? Or can it prove, is it like, you know, useless in that sense because of IP concerns, right? Or because of environmental concerns? Are SPACs useful because um, maybe it is more expensive to go to the public market? Although, as we talk about in our episode on stocks, it's not, I mean, not stocks, on stocks on SPACs. As we talk about in our episode on SPACs, <laughs> as we talk about in our episode on SPACs, it's actually not more expensive to go public uh, with a SPAC. Uh, I mean, uh, with an IPO. And the SPAC is more expensive because it introduces artificial costs and it dilutes the shares and all this other shit that can be modified with alternative SPAC structures, but that give less returns to the investors. And so you have to consider whether or not it's useful or not. They're, uh, mm. If you're more interested in this, the Pershing Square SPACs are like the first iteration of like alternatives that try to realize more returns. So there are questions here about like what in each of these core things will preserve, will remain. But it's hard to tell because as Finn O'Hanigan says, you know, the party is over, but it will keep it's going to be over for a long time. And, this, you know, it's going to keep going on and on and on and on until a very painful burst. Or maybe it might not ever really end and it will just fizzle out. Or maybe we will be stuck with these bubbles forever, you know? I mean, not forever, but for such a long period of time that people will normalize them, just like they normalize the asset uh, bubble that's lurking in our economy, just like they normalize the student debt bubble, just like they normalize the medical healthcare bubble, just like they uh, normalized, you know, the housing debt bubble, right? That mm-hmm. maybe this will just be another one of the bubbles to join the pantheon and just stay there forever. If I had, if I had someone come up to me at a party and ask me how they could take their specs and make them spunk and turn them into <laughs> NFTs. I would ask them if they were stroking out because th- it just doesn't make any fucking sense. You know, like the more I think about what specs are, the analogy comes to me of the medicine show or like patent medicine or snake oil salesman. If you're familiar with that concept, you know, it's back, back in, back in the uh, bad old days when we didn't have, you know, people looking over the shoulder of someone selling patent medicine from a roadside uh, attraction, telling people, you know, oh, this medication will fix the things that ail you. Your wife left you, your hair don't grow, your kids hate you, we'll drink this tonic and everything will be fixed in the morning. It's a, essentially what Pilo Hapatia is. He's just a modern day snake oil salesman, but his vehicle isn't patent medicine. It's 
financial instruments. And granted, it hasn't killed anybody yet like patent medicine did and why there was a big crackdown because, you know, it's not hurting anybody. It's not killing anybody. You know, behind that curtain, there's so much more going on that is happening and uh, people don't fucking care. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, no, that's exactly it. It is, it is snake oil salesman, right? It is the Pied Piper, as this, uh, as Finn O'Hanagan calls him, right? Like that, that is exactly what's going on here. And, um, a few things I want to draw from this as well is that on one hand, that, that I did like, you know, getting a peek behind the curtain as well is, is really on point, Jeremy. There's a, cause I, I was about to read this quote from, from the New Yorker, um, art, uh, profile on Palahapatia. They say, quote, Palahapatia's social media feeds make people feel like, uh, they are glimpsing behind the curtain, but the posts are never so candid that they risk turning people off. Palahapatia told me, quote, I'm a person that makes a ton of mistakes. I'm a person that sometimes tweets a picture of his abs. It means nothing and it means everything. It means that I am like everybody else. It means I'm horny shit sometimes, and other times I'm not. <laughs> That's right. I'm sometimes guy. I'm horny posting, and sometimes I'm finance posting. You and know, I'm, I'm, posting. <laughs> I'm, a, I, you know, I'm large. I contain multitudes. Uh, mm-hmm. But the, the New Yorker profile goes on to say, um, yes and no. Some of Palahapatia's mistakes, uh, quote, mistakes are relatable, but others involve him spending millions of dollars. In any case, his brash approach was also adopted by other Silicon Valley influencers, including Elon Musk, and also by politicians. Quote, Chamath was Trump before Trump, a former colleague of his told me. It is this cult of personality aspect, right? That's what, that's what the profile is really trying to get at here without saying it, is that like, it's about building this cult of personality because you can, you can monetize that. You can financialize a cult of personality, right? And Mm -hmm. what we see is these, the snake oil, right? Which is about, yeah, like, you know, getting people to your, to your circus tent, bringing them over with the sales pitch. But in, in our, in our modern, uh, uh, you know, the finance of the absurd, uh, that snake oil sells, uh, salesman trick looks like things like, uh, uh, you know, meme stocks, right? Pumping up meme stocks, doing shit like that. Um, I mean, it's no coincidence that Palahabatia was a huge proponent early on on Twitter for like, you know, GME, right? He's GME to the moon, right? Same, same shit that Elon Musk does. You know, he did it with GME. He does it with Bitcoin. He does it with Dogecoin, right? Palapatia does the same shit. Uh, something that he he takes it even a, a, a step further in terms of being like super direct about it is that like he creates meme stocks out of his own SPACs, out of his mm-hmm. own companies, mm-hmm. right? So so he can pump up the value, right? Because like I wanted to talk about as well. This is you know another another update here is that uh, we spent a whole episode talking about Clover Health, right? Palapatia's uh, you know, a company that one of Palapatia's SPACs took public. And, you know, Clover Health is this, uh, we won't get into it. Go listen to the episode. Clover and the Big Red Flag is the name of the episode. Uh, but right, like, like it's, you know, health insurance company that, uh, you know, has a lot of fraud allegations against it, right? We did this whole, um, in-depth discussion, discussion of the, uh, the report by Hindenburg, which is a, you know, a, a financial research firm and a short selling firm in its own right. Did this whole in-depth discussion of all of the ways in which Clover Health is allegedly, uh, defrauding Medicare, defrauding patients, 
defrauding mm-hmm. uh, physicians and mm-hmm. healthcare providers, right? Mm-hmm. Provide you know building this software that is just buggy as shit, um, doesn't work, but calling it you know like the greatest innovation in healthcare ever, blah blah right. blah, all that normal shit. And after you know, soon after that um, Hindenburg report came out. Um, soon after our episode came out on it, I'm not saying we were caused by that. No, all credit goes to Hindenburg, right? But, right, but we, right. we were definitely right there at the very beginning of it. Um, you know, soon after that Clover Health stock fucking plummeted, right? But now fast forward a, cu- a couple days ago and, um, I, I want to read uh, some, uh, I want to read a couple paragraphs from Matt Levine, who's the, you know, writes the money stuff column and, and newsletter, which I love. Uh, I, you know, always learning a lot from Matt Levine's coverage of, um, you know, finance and the absurd, as he says, you know, that's his beat. Um, but in a recent money stuff column, Levine said, quote, uh, you know, Clover Health, a health insurer backed by venture capitalist Chamath Palapatia, was swept up in meme stock mania on Tuesday, posting a second day of wild gains as retail investors banded together to punish short sellers betting against the company. Clover rallied 86% to close at $22.15 in New York trading after briefly doubling intraday. The gains erased five months of losses in the stock, which formed part of a broader sell-off in Palihapitiya-backed companies in just two days. Trading volume volume in Clover was more than 29 times the three-month daily average on Tuesday with a record 718 million shares changing hands. And where did this, how did, how did Clover Health start rallying and, and erase months of losses in two days? It did it because, uh, Reddit, you know, as the as this goes on to say, quote, some Reddit users are speculating that Clover Health could be the next short squeeze, which is characterized by a high level of its shares being sold short. Um, and and so you've got all this attention on on like you know Wall Street bets and these like uh, you know financial subreddits that are like uh, you're basically saying like all y'all who missed out on the GME craze, listen up, Clover Health is ready to lift off. It's going to the moon, right? So they're pu- they're pushing it up, but they didn't just choose Clover Health on a whim, right? They chose Clover Health because. Palapatia is a fucking cult of personality to these That's people. Right. He's a mm-hmm. god to these people, right? He's the Pied Piper, right? And he he blew his little pipe and he directed them to uh, his own company, his own stock to say, pump this baby up, erase all of our losses. Why? So he can sell that shit off and, and net himself a cool, you know, few hundred million dollars in profits, which is what he did with Virgin Galactic, by the way, right? Like he, uh, you know, he took Virgin Galactic public through one of his, his SPACs, did this whole uh, rigmarole of raising a lot of capital, raising a lot of investment in it. And then, uh, you know, once once Virgin Galactic, um, the stock was pumped up, he sold it off and netted himself like $300 million in, in profit, right? He just sold his shares and was like, all right, I'm out. That's what, that's what this is, right? It's a grift. It's a, it's a smart 
for him. It's a smart griff, but it is still a griff nonetheless. And I think it's easy to forget that in the moment with the frenzy and when it's when it's a meme stonk because everyone's trying to make money out of it. But time and 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 time again, it's a griff. It's revealed to be a griff. It's hard to express it any further than that. The last episode was pretty clear. It's a grift, right? It's an exploitative company that is probably fabricating numbers. It's paying doctors to be a part of it, right? And it has sketchy, sketchy fucking business practices. Nothing changed about it in the meet, in the time between the Hindenburg report and the explosive growth. And yet there was explosive growth because it's bullshit meme stock, right? Mm-hmm. I'm also just so tired of the meme stock shit as well. Not only because it's a grift, not only because uh, at the you know the the leaders of this grift are these like venture capitalist celebrities and entrepreneur celebrities and you know uh, these wannabe god engineers right you know the people like Elon Musk and the people like Chamath Palapatia right like you know I'm 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 tired of all this stuff as well just because like. It is, again, it's another distraction, right? It's another fucking dangling keys. Um, I mean, I see it in, in the, in the financial, uh, press, right? Like, you know, we, we read the financial press every day because it's what we're interested in. We want to, we want to understand capital. We want to understand the machinations of, of global finance. And so, mm-hmm. you know, o- over the last, you know, well, basically this year, right? Uh, so I guess six months now. God damn, fucking halfway through this year. <laughs> I wasn't ready for that revelation. <laughs> <laughs> it, oh, this God. is forever now. This is forever. Basically, for this entire year, the financial press has just been so obsessed with following the minutia of meme stocks. I even see it in something like Matt Levine's column, right? Like I fucking love Matt Levine's column. Um, but he spends so much time talking about, you know, the minutia of these meme stocks, but also having to explain and re-explain and re-re-explain like what's going on. What does it mean? Like, why is this happening? Um, and it's distracting from other things happening in the global financial system, right? Other things that are going on that are uh, far more materially consequential and important mm-hmm. than um, you, what the latest fucking meme stock is that's being, you know, pumped up by some motherfucker like Palapatia. Yeah, but. If you don't do that, then what are you gonna? Then how are you gonna talk about stuff? We need to talk about the meme stocks. I mean, and this is also part of what we were talking about. Like, there is something inside of this wreckage that might be useful to analyze or to glean insights from about how markets can be corralled, right? Or how easy it is to take that up or down a stock. Or how much more, uh, how much more rational markets and their actors actually are than like what the bullshit everyone tells themselves, even though we know that it's bullshit, right? But uh, for the meantime, we're too close to it, right? Uh, there have been few, if any, useful insights. It's more like, you know, a commentary from the side, right? Watching the ball get kicked back and forth than uh, actual analysis that's been helpful for us because, it, it, you know, it's still, I think, too early to tell what's actually going to be happening with any of these stocks. I mean, GameStop's still fucking up. For God's sake. I mean, it, I feel like on the Stop one hand, it is way fucking up. <laughs> like it's on the one hand, it is a clear cut story, right? A bunch of people on an online forum were mobilized to 
gamble away the resources and more willing to do so than otherwise because they were desperate and we live in a generally desperate and miserable society right now at this point. And because a bunch of people with more money than them, with Bloomberg terminals, were able to convince them to do it. And some, some of them got a lot of money and a lot of them lost the money, right? You know, generally, we understand that to be the case, but I still think that you know any more of this commentary beyond it still is like is like you said pointless right to an extent mm-hmm. right i mean it's good for us as like an example of like pointing out a grifter pointing out um when something we said was right right and pointing out when there is um you know a general bubble going on but com- covering every each and every single one is uh useless okay I think that's going to bring us to our next update as well. And this is something that has gotten some attention, but it's getting a lot of, a lot of the wrong attention. I think there was a big like viral, uh, Wall Street Journal story about how, uh, our favorite asset manager, BlackRock is snapping up, uh, single family homes, right? Uh, you know, how dare they, how dare they, how dare they? Um, so, so, you know, they're, they're snapping up these homes and they're, they're paying 20 to 50% above asking price. They're outbidding normal, you know, like, you know, normal home buyers, people that want to buy these homes for use value, not exchange right. value, right. To <laughs> right. actually live in these homes. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. And, and, and so there's this big story about like, you know, BlackRock is doing this, right? Like, yo, what, what, what's going on here? I mean, on one hand, yeah, like the, uh, it's great. This is, you know, people are getting, you know, this is drawing attention to, to, to something that is not new as well. I do want to point that out. This is not new, right? This is something that, you know, we talked about before, but also something that, um, you know, I've known about for a long time because of really good, rigorous research by um, people like my friend and one of my favorite uh, geographers and political economists, Desiree Fields, who's at UC Berkeley, has been writing for years about this trend in private equity firms, pension funds, asset managers. Uh, Blackstone was really uh, uh, a, a major first mover in this, right? Not BlackRock, Blackstone. Can't get our private equity firm right. and asset managers mixed <laughs> yeah, we up. Can't, we, can't re- we can't mix up the horsemen of capital, man, can we? We've been doing this for 70 plus episodes. <laughs> um, but like Fields and uh, Desiree and some of her colleagues, right, we're talking about Blackstone as what they call a, a global corporate landlord, right? Because like, you know, Blackstone has this portfolio of these single family homes um, that span, you know, entire continents, right? They have like thousands and thousands of homes that they own in these portfolios. What they're doing with that is securitizing the rental flow, right? So it's some like a uh, uh, 2008 redux, but instead of securitizing the mortgages because no one owns homes anymore, you securitize the rent from those mm, homes, you smart. know? That's smart. That's some innovation right there. Mm-hmm. That's financial excellence. That's why they pull in the millions and we don't. That's why we pay them rent, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right. So the so this led to what uh, Desiree has called, um, you know, s- single family rental homes as a new asset class. 
th- this is a new financial asset class for these com- for these firms like Blackstone and BlackRock. And BlackRock's actions on this have been getting a lot of attention, but the framing of it is so fucking bizarro, right? You got mm-hmm. people like so uh, the, the fucking uh, Republican ghouls like latched on to this. Um, why? Because for them, BlackRock is the representative of woke capitalism, right? So you got people like J.D. Vance tweeting out, fucking idiot. <laughs> BlackRock is pursuing an investment strategy that will make it harder for young Americans to own homes. The left will ignore this because BlackRock has committed to, quote, racial audits and other diversity BS. So it's the fact that BlackRock like markets itself as this ESG, right? This environmental and social governance firm that does shit like like is concerned about climate change, concerned about shit like diversity, right? So so people like uh, JD Vance and Ted Cruz and all these other Republican ghouls have latched on to be like, this is woke capitalism in action, and the left will it. ignore this. The left will ignore it. this. <laughs> I, I, I do also. I like this weird move that's been going on where. A lot of the institutions that un- that are doing exactly what these people might want are being called woke. You know, corporations uh, pandering to specific groups through the use of woke language. That's dangerous. The army pandering to specific groups through the use of, you know, language targeting their identities. That's dangerous. Um, BlackRock. Posting record profits because it's capitalizing on, you know, multiple crises. That's, that's woke. That's dangerous, right? I mean, these people are getting mad at just like other capitalists doing capitalism effectively. Uh, this is idea that Chris Hedges talks a bit about in this book he wrote, The uh, Death of the Liberal Class, where he tries to think of through how, you know, liberals his, or you know, there was a type of liberal historically that served as a sort of safety valve where if the system got too capricious or too, um, you know, filled with hubris or was cannibalizing itself, they could step in, right, and effect reforms that would return to a status quo or achieve a new order that would be sustainable and agreeable and reduce the risk of like upheaval and go and churn along, you know, chug along faithfully. But that the purges at the turn of the century and the pretty vicious war that destroyed labor at the top of the 20th century um, resulted in the destruction of that liberal class, of that uh, safety valve. And now we've just been on like a death spiral ever since in one way or another. I also think that it is interesting that joining the death spiral now like these people, Right, these folks who, in an attempt to God knows do what, right, whether it's to oscillate between the populist or nationalist, um, you know, rhetoric for defend for proposing their policies or attacking tech companies and then attacking finance companies and then attacking the military, you know, have also a abandoned or given up their role whatever the role might have been as part of like a safety valve or at least like a boundary line right you know because conservatives have their own part to play right i think we like to think of them also i mean and they are in many instances just like greedy mindless motherfuckers who are pretty you know uh mask off servants of capital and they are i mean but that's also like a role in of itself you know to to start turning the gun at them or rhetorically you know whether it's rhetorically or even um 
super rhetorically, I guess rhetorically would be like, you know, speeches in the public and the, and the, and the foreign and super rhetorically being like, you know, uh, stuff that they're trying, they may or may not be trying to get past or things that they write in their op-eds or their little letters to each other. You know, it feels like they're also forgetting the position that they play in this um, political order. Right. And forgetting the game, which is to just give capital as many defenses as possible. And when it's defending and when it's working, pat it on the back really well. And when it's not like, you know, play defense. Mm -hmm. And in a way, I mean, fucking fools. uh, Vox walked right into J.D. Vance's trap as well. Uh, You know, so Mm -hmm. J.D. Vance is like the left will ignore this because BlackRock is a woke corporation. So what did what did Vox do like immediately? is uh, publish a, an essay called BlackRock Buying Houses Isn't to Blame for the Chaotic Housing Market. And, and why is that? No, of course. Why that? They, you know, they tweet out, right, that uh, uh, you know, everybody wants to blame BlackRock. No one wants to blame low supply, low mortgage rates, and the enormous demand for starter homes. What the and, fuck and, is a starter home? I, yeah, no what one the has fuck? ever <laughs> explained this to me. What the fuck is a starter home? I, Obama said this shit. Obama said the same shit two year, a year ago about starter homes. And I asked and nobody it went, it popped off, but nobody could explain to me what a starter home was. One time I was in a position where I thought I was going to be able to be a homeowner, but I don't think that that's going to be a visibility I'm going to see at least until I'm 50 years old. I know it's fucked up to pray for another housing market crash, but it's going to be the only way I'm going to feasibly be able to afford a house uh, unless I, you know, I start making big stonks and NFTs or whatever the fuck. Um, but starter homes were like, it was this like idea of that, you know, you get this small little house before you have your family or if you're mar- a young married couple without kids, you get a small little house. And then when your family starts to expand, then you sell that house to another young couple and then you go and move on and buy a bigger house. You know, you just basically get the small house that you can pump money into, build equity, turn around, flip it, and use that money to buy something bigger. It, it's essentially, it's essentially the, uh, your first car is basically a means to your next car and so on and so this forth. Sounds, this sounds like my plan to become a kingpin when I was in high school. We're gonna, we're gonna get, <laughs> we're gonna get like an eighth and then we'll sell each gram and we'll stretch the last half and then we'll buy two, <laughs> we'll buy a quarter and then we'll sell each gram <laughs> and then <laughs> let it stretch a little bit and then we'll get a half and then a zip. And then a QP. (laughs) Next thing you know, you're fucking El Chapo. (laughs) Right. I didn't do it. I had a friend who did, but I didn't do it. Right. (laughs) I didn't know enough because I was a fucking stoner. So I was smoking too much of the shit. I've reached, I think I've reached uh, the, what is it? The, uh, the time of the limited time that you have where you can be accused or be, uh, fuck. Why, why am I blanking on this? The statute of limitations. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. There, there, was, there was a time my had in it about 18 or 19 years ago. And I think statute of limitations might be longer than that, bro. <laughs> so we're going to say that's a parody. That's a parody. <laughs>
But Jeremy's just like Jeremy absolutely nailed the explanation of a starter home, right? Like, and and the re and the thing is, is like, yeah, I mean, this was part of that American dream that was sold to like our parents, right? And our parents' parents, right? Like shit that we have been shut out from. Um, so it's just it's it. I, I just think it's once again, it it, it is a. It goes back to what we were talking about with that Washington Post article as well, right? It's like, this is some real manufacturing consent bullshit um, around like, what world are, what world are these columnists for Washington Post, New York Times, Vox living in that they like, that they, that they think this is how it works, right? That, that, that BlackRock is not to blame for this, that private equity firms snatching up thousands and thousands and thousands of single family homes and putting them together into portfolios and securitizing the rental flow. How is that not impacting the housing market? Right. Mm -hmm. Like how, like how, how is, how is, uh, uh, you know, people, the, the immense wealth um, and tax avoidance not exacerbating income inequality. How is the bullshit grift that people like Chamath Palahapatiya doing not leading to a further and further absurdity of finance, right? Like, no, it is. And you're just fooling yourself if you think it's not, right? Mm -hmm. If you want to, if you want to, on one hand, hold these people up as being some kind of paragons uh, of capital while also at this in the same breath saying, but they don't really have any power. They don't really have any power to 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 make structure. Forget about it. Yeah, you don't forget, forget about, about it. it. They're just throwing. Gotta forget them. They're just throwing pebbles into the into the water, right? Don't pay attention to the ripple effect, right? That's the. the don't pay attention to that. That 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 is exactly. It, it's more dangling keys, right? Like no, I mean, good listeners of TMK know. Uh, on one hand, our obsession with BlackRock, but we're not obsessed with BlackRock because we think they're woke. We're not obsessed with BlackRock because we think that they're doing something interesting, right? We're obsessed with BlackRock because they are a, uh, a systemically important financial institution, which has allowed itself to not be categorized as such, right? And therefore not right. be regulated as such. Right. Um, and its move into the housing market is another, is another uh, example of this. I just think it's a lot of bullshit. A lot of people are are, are working really hard to pull the wool over their own eyes mm -hmm. so they can pull the time. wool over all of our eyes. Yeah, you know, I think that, and, you know, well, that brings us to a few lovely articles that we will only be, we'll probably only be able to get to in the Patreon. But mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of wool being pulled over people's eyes, especially with uh, the privatization of more public infrastructure, namely healthcare. In the United States, in the UK, in the United States, in the UK, we see like some of the more advanced experiments by private corporations that take over uh, healthcare systems and and degrade quality in the name of improving markets, right, and the prices. But in reality, all they improve is like their bottom lines. And then, as I think you talked about in the top of the hour, the Cold War shit. I mean. Is anybody surprised? You know, and I think this also, you know, we did an episode last week about McKinsey's smart cities. And I think it's important to think about how that's the sort of stuff that like is going on all the time and has been going on within the West for a very long time. And we don't really talk about it in that sort of context. And instead, when we do show concern about cities, we usually, it's only usually through one belt, one road criticism. And I think similarly, when we show real sur sur uh, concern about surveillance outside of surveillance critics, you know, when commentators are like, look, you need to 
look, you know, even I am concerned about this surveillance. It's usually like of Chinese state surveillance and not like mm-hmm. CCT surveillance on every single corner in the UK and not like corporations infiltrating almost every single household in the United States and turning on internet sharing functions without their permission, right? And so these are also other ways we will talk about that I think pull the wool as you, as you said, over everyone's eyes and convince them that the thing that you feel uncomfortable with and angry about and disgusted with is actually okay and fine, which is also the role of people like, you know, our, our friend of the show, Megan McCurdle, as we, you know, at the top of the hour, right? There's a, there's a class of commentator and there's a class of idea is meant to just convince us that things are supposed to go along as they can, as they should, and that they should, and we should allow things to get worse. And if you want to somewhat improve society, that's too complicated. That's too naive. It's too mm-hmm. ridiculous. That's too dangerous in one way or another, right? Yeah, it's, especially it's, when uh, it has to do with tech. Yeah, especially when it has to do with tech, right? So this will be we'll 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 get further into this into this stuff in the premium episode uh, that'll hit you later this week. But you know, I, I do I want to leave off by saying as well that a lot of what we've been talking about. To, uh, today also kind of falls under the theme of contrarianism, right? And like bullshit contrarianism, right? It's like mm-hmm. that, that's what motivates people like Megan McArdle. That's what motivates, uh, people like Chamath Palapatia is they see themselves as, as the, the great heroic contrarians, uh, in, in society. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and they mistake contrarianism for originality, uh, for depth for for analysis right or or whatever right but but no at the end of the day it's just contrarianism for the sake of it and and the the, you know that's that's also the currency that vox uh trades in as well right it's the people like math uh, like maddie iglesias um who you know founder co-founder of vox not there anymore but Mm. his contrarian streak uh, it has, has imprinted itself on Vox. Um, and, and one, one thing I want, I want to leave, leave us off with, um, that I found, uh, when I, when I was getting mad about this BlackRock article on Vox and like digging into it a little bit, saw some, saw, saw some people saying that, uh, like I said, like, like Vox would do this kind of, uh, caping for BlackRock under the guise of contrarianism for free. So it's just icing on the cake that, uh, a major Vox investor is this private equity firm called General Atlantic. Now, the CEO of General Atlantic also happens to be on the board of BlackRock. Ooh, just follow mm-hmm. that money and it'll lead you <laughs> to all the most interesting and correct places. <laughs> it is so wonderful how everybody knows each other. It is like, okay, if you think that it's weird that you ran into that person in the subway in New York or in Chicago and DC or in LA, I guarantee you it's much, much worse when you're looking down the mastheads or the donor list or the board list of most institutions in this country. Damn, isn't that crazy that this person knows that person? They went to school together, their kids are together, they summer together, they are went to the same fucking college, they went to the same fucking uh, prep school. Isn't that wild how almost everybody in one way or another is connected to each other? Well, they invested in each other's companies, well, they helped each other's campaigns. Oh, okay. No, that's fine coincidence yeah i no, mean it's no, probably no. coincidence in this case maybe i don't know but but <laughs> but also the class i mean in of itself the class is a conspiracy right that's right that's right there's a lot of a uh, strange synchronicity that happens that sure as hell reveals itself as a uh, being some kind of a uh, class conspiracy or uh networks of influence and power and you know but no no it's just it's just 
synchronicity, baby. The the world runs on synchronicity and coinc and strange coincidence. Yeah, no, no, no. It's uh, yeah. Don't worry about it. Don't ask questions. You know. <laughs> and with that, don't ask questions. Just listen to TMK. Right. <laughs> and subscribe. And subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> all right. I want to thank all y'all for listening. And you can subscribe uh, at patreon.com slash this machine kills. Um, and yeah, like 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 I was just laying out. We got a whole lot more updates uh, on topics of TMK interest to dig into later in the week in the in the premium feed. So we will see y'all then later. later.
Bitch, she killed.